Death in Denmark, brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. Episode 4. The Random Victim. Please note this episode contains disturbing details of a real-life murder case. Some voices have been recorded by actors. A person's life is over. Everything that was before, hopes, ambitions, plans with loved ones, all is gone. It's hard to even imagine. It was Ascension Day 2017. The couple had been looking forward to a nice extended weekend, but springtime and freedom were replaced with desperation and despair. For the homicide investigators, it was also the beginning of a hunt of a killer who was not easy to find. Surveillance camera recordings, a barefoot print and one anxious witness were just some of the clues and small details that played a big role in the investigation that finally led to the perpetrator. In this episode, the experts are former chief of the Homicide Investigation Unit at the Copenhagen Police, Detective Superintendent Jens Møller Jensen, Crime Scene Investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen, Forensic Pathologist Hans Peter Hågen, and Lawyer Mette Gritsdage. My name is Stine Bolder. Welcome to the podcast Death in Denmark, told by some of the professionals who were closely involved with the case. He picks up his phone to call his wife. He's on the way home, but he has to stop by the office to get some papers to read over the holiday. The time is about 5.30 to 5.45 on a May afternoon. This is the last time his wife will ever speak to him. The minutes go by, but where is he? She starts to worry. It usually never takes him this long to get home. She dials his number, but there's no answer. Now she's really worried. Finally, a text message arrives. A message that makes her jump into her car and drive towards his office. At Österbro, in Copenhagen. As she was rushing to his office, she called him again and again, but he didn't pick up the phone. Where was he? And why was he not answering? Jens Müller Jensen was the chief of the homicide investigation unit at the Copenhagen police when the report came in. He explains what happened shortly after the police received the call that night and why the wife had suddenly rushed to find her husband. It was Wednesday, the 24th of May, the day before the Ascension Day holiday. I'd gone home when I got a call later in the evening to tell me that quite a serious case had come in. The case involved a 70-year-old man who owned his own accountancy firm. He had to meet up with a client and had agreed with his wife that he would call her on his way home. He called at half past four to say he needed to go by the office to pick up some papers and that he would be home soon. After a while, when she hadn't heard from him, she started to get worried and tried to call several times, but without answer. Around quarter past seven, she received a text message in English that said, Sorry, I'll be home shortly. This made her quite anxious as they never texted each other in English. 
she got into her car and drove to the office in Copenhagen to see what was going on. When she reached the office, there was no light on in the building. She could see his car parked, but nothing else. She tried to call him, but he still didn't answer his phone. She could see a man whom she described as a black man of African origin rinsing the ground using a water hose approximately 80 meters from her. The man suddenly disappeared and she waited another 10 to 12 minutes until she saw what she initially thought was a different man approaching. She asked what he was doing and they communicated in English. He said he was there to clean. He let himself in with a proper access card and she went into the building with him. But then she thought better of it and went back outside. The man came out 10 minutes later and explained to her that he would wait with the cleaning for another day. The woman became increasingly worried and when she couldn't reach her husband on the phone, she called the building manager. When the manager arrived, they walked into the building together. They were met by a macabre sight when they found her husband lying dead with several stab wounds. In a case like this, the first thing the police does is call in crime scene investigators who, while approaching the body, will secure clues so that no evidence is destroyed. A forensic medical examiner examines the body along with the lead investigator. You inspect the body in order to see what injuries there are, in order to find out as much as you can. In this case, the man had suffered several stab wounds. Forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hogan has performed thousands of autopsies and been present at countless crime scenes all over the world. More than most people, he knows what to look for when a possible murder has occurred. When a body is found and the police believe it to be a murder or a suspicious death, they contact the forensic pathologist on call, who then comes to the crime scene. The forensic pathologist then makes an assessment of the deceased on the spot. It will, of course, not be the same thorough examination as later carried out uh, at the Forensic Institute, but the pathologist looks for signs of violence, rigor mortis, discoloration of the skin, and also takes the temperature of the deceased rectum and the temperature in the surrounding ear, for example, inside the room or in the park or wherever it is. The forensic pathologist, again, doesn't examine very thoroughly, but investigates what can be done without taking the clothes off the deceased and whether you can see an immediate cause of death. Is it a stab wound to the heart? Is the head crushed? Is it a gunshot wound in the chest? All three? Or is it a shot in the head? And so on, to get an impression of what has been going on. And so the inevitable question comes from the police almost before you finish investigation. When did this person die? And this is answered as best as one can from the temperature of the deceased and the development of rigor mortis and the appearance of lividity, uh, which is violet discolorations of the skin. You can only form an estimate. Those spots in the skin are quite interesting. What are they and what can you tell from those? It's blood. When the heart stops beating, the blood is not pumped around in the body. The blood lies quietly in the blood vessels and then the blood sinks down. It follows gravity. That is, 
For example, if the body lies on its back, then the blood will pool into the back. There will be spots on the back except where the body is pressed down against the surface due to the body weight. There will be spots on the back, buttocks uh, and the back of the thighs on the shoulders and the neck. If they lie on the stomach, they will be on the front. The flat spots develop in a matter of hours. But if you were lying on your back when you died and someone came by after a few hours and turned your body over on your stomach, then your blood will sink from your back and down to the front of your body. But then a deceased will still have some spots left on his back and then the phenomenon of spots will be visible on both sides, both on his back and stomach. It can be used to say whether the body has been turned or not. You would not be able to say that in the first couple of hours because the blood just sinks and finds a new bed. But after a longer time you can say, oh, the deceased was fine lying on his stomach, but the spots are on his back. Uh-huh. So then someone has turned the body. How are they related to the temperature and rigor mortis? Rigor mortis begins after a few hours, a little depending on the ambient temperature, and then develops for about 12 hours. When it has fully developed, it will disappear again after a few days. It can also be used to form an estimate of how much time has passed from the time of death to the time of finding. Le- The lividity develops in some hours and becomes fixed after six to 12 hours. The fact that there are so many lesions on a dead body, does that tell you anything about what has happened? If there are a lot of lesions, for example, a lot of stabbing, uh, one of the first things to think of would be a word we call overkill. It's that you have stabbed more times than necessary to kill your victim. It's usually linked to rage. So if you're really mad or crazy, you may stab repeatedly again and again in a kind of blood frenzy. I joined a case once uh, many years ago where there were 114 stab wounds. And it's obvious that this is much more than needed to kill a person. The person was dead long before the perpetrator stopped stabbing. I wouldn't say 100% for sure that there is rage in the picture, but it looks like overkill. Does it matter which stab mark is made first when you are doing the autopsy? It's usually important for the police to know it, so they are able to reconstruct what has happened. The perpetrator doesn't necessarily say all during the interrogation. Like, yes, I stuck first here and then there and then there. So it makes it a little easier for the police if it can be reconstructed what actually happened. It's important primarily for the police because it's their responsibility to understand and find out what has happened. Not just that A killed B, but what was the situation, who struck where and how, where they in relation to each other and so on. And there it may be important for the police to know which was the first strike. Obviously, 
if the blood doesn't pump around, then you are dead. And if you have been stabbed, there will not be a lot of bleeding. So it will not be a big tissue reaction. If you're stabbed when you're alive, you uh, will bleed. And if you you hit an artery, uh, it will really bleed. For example, skirt out. And if you hit one of the big veins, it just pours out. If you're dead and get stabbed, then, well, it may ooze a bit, but no more. There's nothing that can pump the blood around, so it doesn't run around in your body. It's just totally still. Crime scene investigator Bent Fytholm Jensen has dealt with many cases in which the victim has been stabbed to death. In such cases, there are special tools and methods used to secure evidence and analyze the crime scene. First, we try to locate where the incident happened. There may be bloodstain patterns, which is a really good tool that can tell us where the body may have been located when the incident happened. The person could have been stabbed multiple times, which often leaves blood spatter in different areas. Sometimes even in the ceiling, depending on how violent it has been. I know blood spatter can be very important for any case. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, there are different types. There's smudging, blood rubs or spatter or splashes. If you hit someone with a hammer close to a wall, there will often be a blood spatter on the wall or up in the, on the ceiling from when you pull the hammer back. If you strike more than once, a lot of blood can come out. And then you, by using a method where you measure partly the width and the length of these uh, blood spatters or splashes, you can calculate where the body has been at that time. If the perpetrator claims that the victim was standing when the incident happened, but the blood spatter is down on the floor or under a chair or a table, he must be lying. We have seen that in many cases before. Back at the scene of the crime, the crime scene investigators and forensic pathologists were busy looking for evidence. The dead man was examined for rigor mortis and discoloration on the skin to give an estimate of time of death. The crime scene was, among other things, investigated for blood stains and fingerprints in order to give investigators an indication of what might have happened. The crime scene investigators and forensic medical examiner finished with the crime scene during the night and the place was released for a general search. We found several interesting traces. Obviously, there was a lot of evidence in the area where the body was found, but we also found traces of blood on the walls in the corridor and other evidence in a bathroom at the end of the hall. In fact, we found something relatively rare, a footprint, Usually what you find is a shoe print, but this was an actual footprint, which indicated that someone had walked around the place barefoot. It turned out that the perpetrator had taken a shower, and that's how the bare footprint got left on the floor. We began considering what might have happened. Had our accountant really gone out to see the client he had mentioned to his wife? Could they have had a disagreement? Perhaps he had detected fraud in a company and been obliged to report it, making someone angry. Or maybe the perpetrator was someone completely different. 
We considered a lot of possibilities and decided that we had better speak to his wife. So we took her in for questioning at the police station. One of the interesting things she explained was that a few months prior, when her husband had been in the office over the weekend, he had surprised a man who had explained that he was a cleaner. Her husband hadn't believed that and had tried to call the building owner to check if that could be right. But as he was about to dial the number, the man became angry and had taken his phone to prevent him from calling. The situation became quite intense, and although things calmed down again, when they separated it wasn't on friendly terms, and it still wasn't clear if the man was a cleaner or not. The strange man from the office posing as a cleaner is getting more and more interesting to the police. On a surveillance video from the area, investigators finally find what they are looking for. A man who arrives on the street shortly before the time of the crime. Happy and cheerful from a supermarket. Now the net is being drawn tighter. Because the man is only a few hundred meters away from the scene of the crime. Of course. It wasn't certain that that man was the perpetrator, but he was a person of interest for the investigators to find and question. Because why had he been there, and what had happened? During our investigation, we found out that the cleaning in the building had been outsourced to a man also of African origin with a residence in Sweden. We also discovered that the previous cleaner had been a woman. We initially had some trouble identifying her, probably because she was moonlighting, but we did find out that at one point she had reported her access card missing and had received a new one. By following the trail of the missing access card, we were able to identify the woman. By going through some phone records, we located her phone number and discovered that she had been calling another number not listed anywhere. When we investigated the movement of the number she was calling, we found that it was usually close to the scene of the crime for a couple of hours after people had left the office, around six or seven o'clock. But also that it stayed on site throughout the evening and nighttime, only leaving in the morning. It was also at the scene of the crime on weekends and holidays. This was interesting because it showed us that the phone was typically at the office whenever the employees were not. Obviously, this makes sense if you are there to clean the place. But what was interesting was that the phone was there for a lot longer than it would take to actually clean the building. After looking into the phone a bit more, we found out that the phone had been used to make calls to someone who lived outside of Copenhagen, and we decided to put some surveillance on that address. Not long after, we discovered that the woman who lived there was the same woman who was hired to clean the offices and had previously lost her access card. When we approached her, she explained that she had given her card to a man she knew, but he was not known in Denmark, he didn't live in Denmark, and in fact, he did not exist in any records. At the same time, we started reviewing a lot of video material based on her description of the man. However, reviewing video footage is difficult when you don't know what to look for. But based on the description we had from the cleaning lady and the wife, the investigators found some video of a man leaving a stall and moving in the direction of the office. This was only a few hundred meters from the office building, and based on their description and what he was wearing, he could very well have been the same man as the wife had seen that evening at the crime scene. The investigators managed to find someone who did match the description by looking through hours of surveillance material. 
a man who matched the description appeared at an address in a city outside of Copenhagen, and the police took him in for questioning. As in all other cases, as a possible suspect, he was personally examined at the Institute of Forensic Medicine. That is something forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hagen knows a lot about. As a possible suspect, because you are not the perpetrator until you have been convicted, but you are the one the police suspects have something to do with the case. So your entire body surface is examined. All the skin is examined from head to toe to see if there are any incisions, stab wounds or bruises. These lesions could be related to what had happened if there had been a fight or one had killed the other. We also take nail scrapes with some little sticks like toothpicks and scrape under each nail on all 10 fingers and it's sent to the forensic genetic department for blood and DNA examination. After all, it could be the DNA of the victim. And then... If there are blood stains or other stains that could be biological material, it's also wiped and sent in for further examination, primarily for DNA examination. Blood is drawn and the blood sample is sent to the forensic toxicology lab for alcohol and drug testing. Uh, You may ask why, when you are charged in a murder case, you would be tested for alcohol and drug use. But it could be important for the outcome of the case in one way or another. If you were heavily intoxicated or heavily influenced by drugs, what do I know? We have only one bullet in the chamber and we'd better not miss. So we take all the samples we can at that time. In addition to the forensic examination, the man was also checked and questioned by the homicide investigators and a picture of the possible perpetrator slowly emerged. We found out that the man had chosen to live illegally in Denmark and had done so for several years. He had earned money by doing illicit work as a cleaner for different buildings around the city. We discovered that he had been living in the office where the crime had been committed every night after the employees had gone home. He had slept on the couch and left again every morning before anyone had come in to work. Later on, after his arrest, some of the employees mentioned to us that looking back they had wondered why some of the pillows on the couch sometimes were not in their original place and that often the kettle would be hot when they arrived in the morning. This was information that would have been crucial to the investigation had they told us in the beginning. The murder occurred late afternoon when the illegal immigrant believed that everyone had gone home for the weekend. He lets himself into the building with the access card and goes upstairs as he usually does. But this evening the accountant returns. It's around a quarter to six when he arrives at the building. He enters the building and heads for his office. We believe that this is where he meets the man. I imagine the accountant wanted to call someone to check if he was actually a cleaner, like the last time they ran into each other. But to protect himself and avoid someone finding out he was in Denmark illegally, the perpetrator chose to stab the accountant and it ended in murder. The man never confessed to the murder. 
but the investigators found convincing evidence and important clues that all pointed towards him. The extensive forensic investigation at the crime scene had paid off. A single barefoot print was found on the floor near the bathroom, and fingerprints and DNA from the suspect had been secured. A barefoot print is the same as a fingerprint. When we have the suspect, we take their footprint exactly as we would with any fingerprint. Black ink on a piece of paper for the experts to compare it to the one found on the crime scene. In this case, the print from our suspect matched the one we found in the bathroom at the crime scene. We also found DNA and fingerprints that matched the perpetrator, so we had all the evidence we needed in this case. Many people today think DNA is the best evidence we can get, but that's not completely true. In Denmark, DNA has an evidential value of 1 to 1 million. That's the highest value you can expect. This means that with a population of around 5 million, there are potentially five people in Denmark walking around with the same DNA match. In comparison, fingerprints or footprints are completely unique and can only be matched to one person in the entire world. This means that fingerprints and footprints are regarded as evidence, whereas DNA is just a strong indication, depending on the weight of evidence given by the forensic geneticist. This means that when we only have DNA, we need to find other factors that link the suspect to the crime. When we have fingerprints, then that's enough to prove that you've been there. But it's not proof that you've done the killing or the action, so we must prove that by other means. The older man is lying on the floor, wounded by several stabs to his body. Standing over him is a man with a knife in his hand. The man with the knife bends down to pick up the phone of the injured man. He finds the video feature and presses record. Later, when the recording is discovered, the police hears an English-speaking man talking to the wounded. He wants him to say something. Maybe one last goodbye. The video footage on the deceased phone wasn't found until late in the investigation but it was presented as a part of the evidence in court. Medikrit Stey has previously worked as a prosecutor and now works as a lawyer. She knows how important a video recording can be in a case like this. During the investigation of this case, the police found out that the victim's cell phone was used to record a video of the victim himself while he was still alive, and the video was recorded by the perpetrator. In this video, there was an action which was considered as a threat and therefore the perpetrator was accused of threats and actually also accused of robbery of that very mobile phone. This video footage was also shown in court. Why is it important to show such horrific things in court? The video was an important part of the evidence against the defendant who pleaded not guilty. And since the video showed some of the circumstances surrounding the murder, it was important to play the relevant parts before the court. Not only did the video indicate that it was the defendant who killed the victim, but the prosecutor also showed the video in order to give the court an impression of the circumstances regarding the murder, to show how brutal the murder was. In court, the defendant said that he did this video of the dying man for the sake of his family as a 
kind farewell to the family. What do you think about that? Well, I think that this explanation seems quite unbelievable, especially considering all the other circumstances that indicated that he was the one who killed the victim. But the defendant pleaded not guilty, and in the Danish legal system, the defendant has the right to say whatever he or she prefers, both when being interrogated by the police, but also when given statement in court. It is only witnesses who has to tell the truth in court. And in this murder case, the defendant explained that he didn't commit the murder, but that he found the dying man after he had already been beaten up, and that is why he made the recording. Not very likely, I would say, and so said the court, but in criminal cases we often hear the most unlikely stories. In a Danish criminal case, both the prosecution and the defense can only call witnesses if they have a knowledge of the specific case, whereas we normally don't call character witnesses to tell whether the defendant was a good or a bad guy, as they do in many other legal systems. In most cases, the relatives both to the defendant and to the victim doesn't know anything about the specific case and therefore not called as witnesses. But in this case, the wife of the victim had actually been close to the scene of the crime and she had observed the perpetrator. Therefore, she was called as a witness in order to shed some light on the specific murder case, which of course was very stressful for her considering the loss she had suffered. No matter if the relatives has to witness or not, they will often show up in court in order to follow the court hearings. In this case, what sort of punishment should such a man receive? According to the Danish Criminal Code, the punishment for a murder is from five years up to lifetime imprisonment. But from jurisprudence, you can conclude that the sentence will normally be 12 years imprisonment. Then, of course, there can be mitigating or aggravating circumstances, meaning that the sentence will be either lower or higher than 12 years. Aggravating circumstances can, for instance, be if a murder is especially planned and prepared or if it's very brutal. In this case, there was nothing to indicate that the murder was planned. It probably happened spontaneously because the victim had surprised the perpetrator on the spot where he lived illegally. So at least there were no special preparation, but it is always violent when such a thing happens. And with the video recording this murder appeared very brutal. Even though the defendant was not only convicted of murder, but also convicted for the threats and convicted for robbery of the mobile phone, he was only sentenced to 12 years imprisonment, and then he was deported from Denmark for good. The case was finally solved. The victim had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. A classic random killing where there's no relation whatsoever between the perpetrator and the victim, these are the most difficult to solve. Although we have told you the key points of this story in a relatively short amount of time, it was actually a long investigation, a bit like finding a needle in a haystack. However, we succeeded. After all, that's the thing with murders. So many people are wronged in a murder case. Many remain hostages in a murder case for the rest of their lives. And that applies to both sides. It changes the life of the perpetrator, the perpetrator's family, and of course the deceased, but also the deceased's family and friends who must live with what they have been through for a long, long time. 
One evening, just before going home for the holidays, a man was brutally killed by a complete stranger. A killing as meaningless as possible. Luckily, in Denmark today, we have a very high detection rate when it comes to homicide. Even in cases like this one, where the victim and the perpetrator do not know each other. In a society such as ours, it's important for us to know that the responsible will eventually receive their punishment. And I hope that this will also provide some sort of peace of mind for the relatives of the victims that were taken away too soon. Thanks to former Chief of Homicide Investigation Unit at the Copenhagen Police, Jens Müller Jensen, Crime Scene Investigator, Bent Hytholm Jensen, forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hogan, and lawyer Mette Gritsdage for your stories. Death in Denmark is produced by Bauer Media and True Crime Agency and has been brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. This was the final episode in this our first series. But we hope to be back soon. Subscribe to us now, so you never miss an episode. And get your true crime fix in Crime Monthly magazine. Out in shops now.